this, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. listeners, this is Amy Polly. welcome to the 71st episode of the Practice of Learning Teams podcast show. On today's podcast Brent Sutton and Brent Robinson discuss a range of topics around learning teams, worker engagement, participation, and representation. Please sit back and enjoy this episode of, Two Brents Are Better Than One, as we continue our conversation of learning and improving together. Well, I thought it was a great opportunity to catch up before I uh, head from New Zealand to Australia. By the time this podcast goes out, I'll be yeah, uh, hopefully a, in the in the land of Australia. It's been a while, hasn't it? It sure has. And you'll be pleased to know I had my second boost yesterday, so I've now had four vaccinations. Oh, and yes. um, for the listeners there, I'm still not magnetised. <laughs> still can't answer your phone on still your can't, um, no. hand yet. No, no there's no, no. built-in Alexa yet but there's always hope well it's coming it is coming it is coming so you in new zealand you can have four shots now we've just been allowed on uh as of monday this uh, next week we can get our fourth shot if you're over 30 recommended for people over 50 so that's me brent yeah yeah well i i i i I definitely signed up for it so um it was all, all really good so i had that done yesterday uh no um known symptoms right now apart from a twitch, um, picking up an FM station, and yeah, that's it, that's really, and, and the odd voice. And you can pay for your groceries using your forehead. Yeah, yeah, and I can I can channel a Todd Conklin if I need to. So, uh, That's a special dose, that one. It is, it is, it's a special dose. But look, it'll be great, and uh, we're doing, for the listeners, we're doing a road tour across uh, Melbourne, Sydney, and Brisbane. This time round, so we're going to be Yeehaw. catching up with uh, uh, our community and catching up with some uh, friends and colleagues on our uh, learning teams and new new view journey that we're going on. Looking forward to it. Yeah, and and of course, um, part of the reason why we're going there is a lot of organisations are wanting to move away from the headline of the what and the why. And they really want to have that deeper conversation about the how and the when. Yeah, and that has been a constant, ongoing conversation with the you know the groups of organisations that I've been talking to, um, and the wider community. I think what I'm seeing is people are, well, particularly leadership groups of they get the new view they understand it they understand the benefit of it um many of them have spent money on seminars and training and getting their people up to speed with the new view but the constant question that i get is around so how do we implement it what's the what's the process you know and and it's been really you know really interesting that this the how and the when how are we going to do it and when are we going to do it is now where everybody needs to focus. I think people are, you know, training is great and, you know, 
go do some training. Fantastic. But really, it's the opera, opera, I can't even say the word, Brent, opera, operaization of it. Yeah. Keepers. Yeah. Am I having trouble today? I think I might be having a um, stroke. Oh, you need another vaccine? Yeah, that's, that's what it could be. That'll sort you out. Yes, no, I mean, look, there's definitely, I, I think um, we can use the word uh, operization. We could also use the word about how do organisations um, embed this so it becomes a daily and sustainable practice. Yeah. And, and really around everyday work. How are we going to how are we going to implement it around everyday work? So we're learning from everyday work. You know, I was with an organisation last week and they've done the the cultural safety survey or the safety survey as they were calling it. And one of the questions I asked them, I said, "Well, really, that's just a snapshot in time, isn't it? It's one day that you've done this over. What does it look like in two weeks' time? Does it give you any different signals further down that path?" And you know. Naturally, the answer is no. You know, it is a, it is a you know great thing to do get a get a snapshot. But their feeling was that they were getting the answers they were expecting to get, not necessarily the answers that were really about how people were having to adapt to everyday work. Yeah, and particularly with I'm those. I'm really interested in that. And I think, in particular, it's where those surveys um, really ask a lot of um, feeling-based questions around a like it scale. Yep. Rather than actually talking about um, specific examples, you, you might recall when we were writing that book, we were um, uh, we developed that little survey tool in the healthcare sector, where yep. we were running some learning teams around some uh, critical risks, in particular around uh, uh, patient handling, and it wasn't so much about where they felt the organisation was on the scale. It's where we ask them to give us examples of that. Because what we found from asking those examples is that the narrative told us two things. The narrative told us um, some of the keywords, some of those weak signals that were coming through. But more importantly, that narrative was telling us about um, how the worker saw themselves in the system and around their capacity to cope. Yeah. And you can't get that from a snapshot. You can't get that from a, a Likert scale on a survey. Well, that, that's one of the feedback. Uh, one of the things we got in the feedback from it was that lots of people were saying three. You know, they, weren't, they didn't feel that it was really good, but they didn't feel it was really bad. You know, yeah. so, and, you know, we've seen that before with a couple of those surveys where you get lots of threes, you know, and I know there'll be a whole bunch of psychologists out there that say, oh, you need to change your survey. But my po- I think my point and your point is that it's really around the um, the context. And with a survey, you don't get that daily context, that, that daily grind, where is the friction within our systems and how are people having to adapt to get the work done around the system quite often. The yeah, survey doesn't, you know, survey doesn't do it. The, the surveys aren't asking stories. And I, and I no. always love it when the survey says, and, and what could you suggest we do differently? Um, come on, guys. That's the job of the organisation, not the person. Yeah. Okay. The, yes. system, the system is supposed to be supporting people. I mean, why don't you go back and put a crappy um, suggestion box on the wall 
make sure it's filled up and then never use them. Yeah. Because people know whatever they put in there, it's, it's highly unlikely to actually be, uh, well, it may be read, but it's highly unlikely to be acted on. Yes. Yeah. Which is, you know, if you think about that, what are you, what are you telling your people? You know, what are you telling your workforce, your frontline workers, that we want you to say something, but we're not going to do anything about it anyway? Yeah, you know, well, so you, yeah. You know, and, and, and the organization will say, oh, you know, we've been consulting with them. And my thing would be to say that, well, but they're not participating, are they? They tried participating, but you didn't do anything with it. So you've lost that ability now for your workers to participate. But a lot of these things are top down, aren't they? Like the safety survey is very much the, the executive management team says, we're going to do a safety survey, see how we're faring so we can improve. And it's a top down thing. It's not a bottom up. And so you're not getting a true reflection of what's going on. Well, as we said, it's a snapshot. So it's a one-day gig. It is. And I like the fact that you talked about consultation because what does it actually really mean? Because a lot of consultation I, I see is one way. We're telling you something. Yep. Well, that's well, not consultation. I, I, I like... So in Australia, we typically use, or the regulators use, consultation and communication. That's where we pour a lot of stuff down the line from management to supervisors to the front line and then we invite them into a room with a whole bunch of people call them an hsr and then expect them to stand up to a whole bunch of people that they don't feel necessarily comfortable with absolutely and then, and then they'll say and sometimes you know i think we try and do a reasonable job in most organizations to give them some training around that but you know they don't necessarily have agency to get that story from the factory floor or the construction side, or wherever that might be, the hospital, wherever it might be happening, the transport company, the logistics company. And they're sitting in a room with a whole you know, bunch of people that have more, <clears throat> typically more agency than they have. Look, I, I think... Isn't that theatre? You know, um, uh, worker representatives, regardless of what we call them around the world under different sort of legislations, are really important. But they, they typically are really voicing those common themes or threads that they're hearing from workers a lot. Yes. And, and I sort of wonder how much other stuff actually doesn't, doesn't carry on. So I do like the whole idea that, and we talked about it quite a bit in the white paper, Learning from Everyday Work, that you need to capture the voice of the worker. Yep. And that there has to be um, an engagement component. There has to be a participation component. And there has to be a representation component. And I, I yeah, I totally agree because I've got a new formula on my uh, on my desktop here that says if you've got participation, participation equals engagement, and engagement will equal improvement. Mm-hmm. But you know what? You're driving it from the bottom up. It's worker driven, and I think that's what we we're really pointing at in the discussion with <clears throat> excuse me with everyday work. Because it was really about stopping that top-down uh, flow of information and safety and turning it upside down and saying, hey, we're going to learn a lot more from everyday work. Yep. And you've got to get the frontline people to actually participate in it. That's right. So when we, when we start that conversation with organisations <laughs> about um, uh, how they want to embed uh, learning teams in the organisation or how they want to create that sustainability... Um, our, our first thing is to actually say, let's start at the front, the coal face of it. Let's start with the workers. 
Let's yep. start the conversations with them. Um, because that is where we'll find the opportunities to learn. But more importantly, those opportunities, they're not just about the organisation learning. They're not purely about operational learning. There's also that, that notion, um, the fact that workers, by sharing their stories with other workers, there will actually be that level of self-improvement. Yeah. And, and I think there was that, I can't remember that chap's name now, but he said that 95% of learning comes from people sharing with others. Yet, yep. you know, the reality is most of the learning that we try and do at the moment is in classrooms. Now, once yes. again, I'm not against training, but for the fact is that most training is simply dumping a whole lot of information on a person and hoping they'll sort that information or take some of that on board and it changes them. i got to tell you, that's a big ask. But I think one of the other things that we've been asked, I know that you have, and I definitely get asked this, is about, well, we're, you know, we're going to do all this training and we're going to do this um, change management program from the top and, and run that through our organisation. And my view is go and try some stuff with learning teams and understanding everyday work, get the workers to tell their stories, and you're going to learn something anyway, right? You're going to actually get some participation because you're actually uh, getting them involved, and you just need somewhere to facilitate that for you. And you're going to get a benefit out of it. And it's really, really obvious. And it's going to be quick. If you try and do one of these large cultural change programs, it's going to take months and months and months. And you're going to spend a, an inordinate amount of money pushing it down through the organization. Um, and, the, and, the, and the failure rate is, from what I have seen in my 30 years, it's quite high with these big cultural change programs. Yeah, I remember there was an old saying, which is probably no longer appropriate, but I remember that saying about how do you eat an elephant? And the answer was one, one bite at a time. At a time, yeah, okay? exactly. Not that, I'm, not that I am encouraging people to eat elephants. No. Right. Hard to buy, I imagine. <laughs> exactly. Um, but it's true. I mean, if we're, trying to, if we're trying to affect change, we need both a top-down strategy we're really we're asking leaders simply to be curious and to listen. Yep. And we need a bottom-up strategy of empowering our workers to share those stories. Yep. Those stories about how they're having to work within the system. And I, and I sometimes ask that question, are they working in the system in spite of the system? Or are they working in the system because of the success of the system? Yeah. And That's I, a great question. I, sadly, I would have to put my hand up and say that most people, it's in spite of. Yep. Not in the success of. But I think we're seeing that because work is becoming more dynamic, isn't it? We're not making the same widget over and over and over again. So we don't get the opportunity necessarily to really hone those procedures and those processes we're relying on our people to be highly adaptable and if you're in the construction industry or any of these dynamic risk industries and I was, i'd say a lot of manufacturing is becoming that now because what you did yesterday is different to what you're doing today process might be the same the actual mechanism might be the same but the type of work you're doing and the size and all those things are changing all the time and you know we're seeing it in construction you've definitely seen a lot of it in logistics or logistics-related mm -hmm. industries, where you're asking your people to make to 
be highly adaptable. Yeah, look, I've, I've been recently doing some, uh, some work in the horticultural sector around some automation, um, and they've just finished their season, and it was fascinating that they basically hired anyone if they had a pulse. Yep. Okay, so all their recruitment systems from previous seasons all went out the door because there was a lack of resources. Now, two questions arose from that. Um, if you didn't have a pulse, does that mean you get to work two shifts because you're a zombie? <laughs> but more importantly, I asked them this question, well, given that you were hiring people without going through your normal process around um, you know, their capability and their competency, things like that, did you actually see an increase in harm? And what was the answer? Well, they see what they saw was an increase um, in people reporting uh, body conditions around sore muscles, sore arms, sore this, sore that. Okay. And that's frankly because they've not been conditioned working in those environments before. Yeah. So they had some discomfort injuries. But yep. when it actually came to actual injuries and the job they were doing or the machinery they were working in, the answer was no, there was no increase. Yep. So I then asked them, had your system been changed to deal with this new risk? And the answer was no. No, yeah, exactly. So, so the people have, the people have adapted and the system hasn't. Well, that was the other question I asked them. How did the how did how did people adapt? And their response was, "We don't know." <laughs> so then I asked the, the that classic closing question: Was that based on good luck or good management? Yep. And you and should have seen was. the look I got. <laughs> well, I think all managers would like to think it was good management, Brent. But yeah, I suggest it would be a. Uh, a healthy dose, dose of both, maybe from Absolutely. being um, and and some nice. uh, rabbit's feet and some leprechauns and and all the other things that go on. So the reality was, um, obviously, without looking in depth, I would say to you that the people that they rely on, in the absence of these systems then it was the cultural practice that existed in those work teams that made the difference. Yep. And if they looked at their normal workforce that they employ the whole time versus seasonal, I said, why don't you go out there and find out how those cultural practices get set up? Yeah. Because, how does that story get told? Yeah, because it is all storytelling. Yes, because that's all. That's um, all, that's all that's left, really, isn't there? English is a third, fourth, fifth language. Yeah. So that was it, and and it's really made the organisation think really hard. You know, I absolutely agree. We need to have a system. System needs to support people. All those things have to exist. But we were faced with a monumental issue that didn't exist prior to COVID. It was difficult to plan because this lack of resources has has been a combination of not bringing in those workers from overseas that they used to rely on. Yep. But more importantly, 
um, just the constant ongoing absences of sick, sickness as a result of both uh, the Omicron version of, of COVID, but also yep. the fact that we're in a winter season at yeah. the same time. We're seeing exactly the same thing here. I was talking to a manufacturer the other day. <clears throat> uh, if they went back 10 years, out of their 30 people, they would have had possibly two casuals. At the moment, they're 50% casual. Right. Right. The, he goes, the casualization of the workforce is twofold that the amount of work is, is fluctuating all the time. One moment we've got nothing, next minute we've got lots. And he said, and people don't want a a full-time job. They either want part-time or they want casual because it pays at a slightly higher rate in Australia. Yeah. And he says it's a huge issue because we're, we're trying to train them on how to use a machine and, you know, we want to skills take a a time to build exactly the same thing we're asking that same question about well how how are they how are they adapting when you got these new people coming in he goes we're relying on the 50 percent of people that have been there for several years wow you know to to teach them effectively to to show them the ropes to move those stories across you know because the organization doesn't have it necessarily Isn't it isn't it interesting that that when we're that when we're resource rich, we behave one way. When we're resource poor, we behave a different way. Hmm. Yet, when we're resource rich, we blame our regular workers for passing on bad habits. Yep. When we're resource poor, we basically encourage our workers to pass on those habits. We, uh, not not knowing asking, whether those habits are good or bad. Yeah, not knowing whether totally, those habits... Yeah. I totally agree. And, and that's what I find frustrating sometimes is that we rely on... Um, or lots of businesses rely on their, their workforce to adapt mm-hmm. until they adapt too far and go, oh, you did the wrong thing. Hold on. There was, you didn't, the system didn't have any upper and lower control limits. Yeah, it didn't have a crash barrier for me to crash into. You're just asking me to get all this stuff done, and we're trying to do it the best way we possibly could with the knowledge that we have. How people uh, move from innovating the procedure yeah. to blame with within a moment. Yes, within a moment. <laughs> One minute we love our innovative staff, next thing that their, their behaviours are terrible. Yeah. So I was working with a group of middle managers in the organisation as well, and we're trying to give them some insight around. Uh, you know, machinery risks as they go through this automation process. Uh, because, you know, once again, uh, they, they feel that, you know, all their machinery is, is well designed, well built, well this, well that. And when it goes wrong, then of course, it must have been the worker's mistake. And I said, you know, obviously when you run an investigation, you don't do root cause, you do root blame. Yep. And they looked at me because I basically said, workers only get hurt because your system around managing that machinery risk basically didn't take into account what we call reasonable foreseeable misuse. Yep. And they said, well, you know, the example was they've got a machine, um, it's got a worker stand either side as they sort fruit going down the conveyor. There are, there are two conveyors either side, okay, and, and no surprise, in the middle you've got two belts and a gap. And they couldn't understand why workers will put their fingers under the belt. Is there something there? Yeah, yeah. And I said, I said, 
you know, we had a chat about the fact that it's about the opportunity. Yep. Okay. And they're quite possibly trying to fix something that they know is going to be a problem yeah. later on if they don't fix it straight away. Or they're reaching in to grab the bad fruit before it comes onto the conveyor table. Yeah. There'll be, but where they're but reaching the, into is where nip pointers. Yeah. So, and you want to take the bad fruit out. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you had, if you're looking at those weak signals that they are, oh, you know, this is, I find this nearly really dangerous. I got my finger nearly caught yesterday. If that was coming up and there's a weak signal all the time, when you're putting in this new automation, you take that into account. But at the moment, you're not, because nobody's participating then they're not getting that, they're not, the organization's not getting that feedback. And that story has just been lost. It's, it's dissipating into the noise of the organization of everyday work. So, you know, obviously those organizations need some way of pulling those weak signals out and understanding them. Yeah. You know, I, how many organizations have you been into where they'll say, oh, you got this new machine, something went wrong, somebody got hurt. Oh, but we, can, we consulted with the workers. Well, Did yeah, you? well yeah, what's what consultation? Yeah, what what does yeah. that mean? Yeah. yeah. We told them that sign says do not touch. Yeah. That sign says do not put your hand in. That we sign told says them that we've got a um, replace the guard when finished. Or, or, yeah. or even the consultation is oh we're getting a new machine. What do you think? Oh, that'd be really good. The old one's old. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. not consultation, people. No. no. Absolutely not. And, and of course, down this part of the world. We take machinery and we make it do work that it was never designed to do to begin with. Yeah. We multitask it. So yep. working with a company that, uh, um, you know, in the artesian bread industry. Yes. And one machine produces five different types of doughs and yep. six different configurations from rolls to buns to loaves to pizza bases. Now, that machine has the same hazards, but why did it come as a surprise to them that those hazards were present during different times depending on the type of dough and the type of output that you were doing? And they kept telling workers about the hazards rather than actually engaging the workers to talk about the hazardous situations that come about. Yep. When they're basically, you know, setting up the machine, when they're running the machine, when they're cleaning the machine. Machine, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, we see that quite a bit where we've got a SOP for running the machine. But we don't have a SOP for a um, unplanned maintenance event. Mm -hmm. Or we don't have an SOP for a quick changeover necessarily. Yeah. You know, and people say, oh, there's an SOP. Well, I'm not sure that, you know. Who who was involved in that? Oh, I was the engineering team, the safety, the safety coordinator, and um, the guy from finance. Right. You know, and how many people? How many workers are on that team? Uh, none. We uh, we consulted with them though when we put it out there on the floor. Yeah, yeah, and we did ask them: Was the font big enough? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and it was a page and a half instead of a, you know. A, something like a standard work document or something much easier for people to work their way through. So in these things, workers love sharing their stories. Yeah. And in that example last week, I got them to run a little, a quick, what we call sort of guided facilitation with, with the workers. 
And um, soon enough, that middle management actually found that that machine was not as safe as they thought. Because they actually found, for examples, they found that you that workers couldn't reach the emergency stops from where they stood. Yep. Uh, they found that if the worker did activate an emergency stop, it actually there was a knock-on effect um, three conveyors up where fruit would build up. And workers had been told, don't pull the cord because you create a blockage of fruit at the other end. <laughs> yeah. But my arm's in it. Yeah, my arm, yeah, that's right. Well, that's why you're born with two arms um, in, that, in that way. So, uh, so, so this is typical. So the managers, it was only after they heard the stories that it made them think and made yeah. them curious. And once they were curious, they asked questions that really brought about change. Yeah. And, and how hard about, was it? that? I mean, it, was it, it didn't need to be a full blow-on learning team. It was no. just a simple means of engagement. Yeah. And they ran this exercise of what could happen, how it could happen, why it could happen, and what was the likely impact. And it was really interesting for them to describe those differences. Yeah. And I think it's a great way of looking at it. And uh, and imagine the participation you get. You know, the workers are now involved. The frontline people are involved. They're having their say. So they feel that they're valued in that whole process. And the organization is learning something, and you're going to get an improvement out of it, aren't you? Yeah. Not only will there be a safety improvement, but there'll be an operational improvement. Yeah. That's why these two things always, and you know, always come together, but it's coming from that participation and engagement piece. So and it's it, coming from the bottom up. So you know? it reminded me of that Einstein quote, which will now be picked up by every other consultant and podcast provider out there. <laughs> that um, uh, people you pop- can you, you popularized it. Yes, I did. I popularized it. That's right. That people can only see what they know. That without yep. knowledge, without knowledge, we can't see things. Yep. Without organizational knowledge, the organization can't see things. Without workers having knowledge of the tasks they do, they can't see things. And, and I'm always surprised why organisations keep wanting workers to identify new hazards. Yeah. So so how can they identify this new hazard if they have no knowledge of it as a hazard to yeah. begin with? Do you, do you think it's a puzzling it's a puzzling world we work in? Oh, it is. And I, but I think it, it flows up and down the organisation as well as where you see, um, you know, earlier in the year we were talking to an organisation and their managers were going out there looking for um, hazards. So they had a um, they had to each manager had to do a hazard ID. I guess it's like a safety observation in some respects. Um, and so they'd walk around the floor and you know, maybe talk to a few people. But and then they had a KPI. They had to bring back. They had to do, find two new hazards every month. Right. If they're not doing the work, how do they know what all the hazards are? They have got no context around it. They have got no oh. knowledge. Back to your point. And I said to them, "Why do you do it?" And they go, "Oh, it's a KPI, and we get measured on that KPI as managers." Yep. Yeah. I'd stop doing it because I don't think you're helping. Yeah, well, actually, with this group of managers, I I took them out into their um, factory environment, and um, uh, one of the fairly new machines was completely caged off. And and yeah, you know, I I love a good distance barrier. I think it's really really good. Yep. And they explained to me that that during the cleaning season, these panels get removed, which is all good. 
And I said, well, while we're here, can everyone just go around and just and make sure that the panels are fitted correctly? Well, do you think they were all fitted correctly? Probably not. No. No, they weren't. A number of them weren't. And what was interesting is that when I looked in the ground, I could actually see marks where people have been getting access through the fence into the machine area. <laughs> what, crawling underneath? Well, no, they could, they could pull it because it was loose. They could pull it open oh, and yeah. go through. Yep. Oh, okay. Rather, than, rather than walking, you know, 20 metres down. Once again, that's yep. not the fault of the worker. And I try to explain to the managers that this is what we call reasonable, foreseeable misuse. Yep. And because they kept asking, why would someone do that? And I said, no, you've got to stop asking that question because it's not a question of if it can happen, it's a question of when it can happen. Yep. So more importantly, where was their assurance that when these panels are reef are put back on, that someone is actually checking to make sure it's been done? Yeah. Because they have this permit system, they hand it off to the contractor, contractor does, does the work, hands them back a piece of paper saying it's done. Yep. And I said, so that's it. So you just and I didn't even ask where the paper goes because I could only imagine. But I said to them, that is not for assurance. For the regulator. For the regulator. For the regulator. Later. Yeah. I said, that's not assurance. If if you are relying on this control, so I said to them, if that machine can give you a tickle, I'm not worried. Yep. If that machine can be a life-changing event and your fencing is the only thing keeping people away from danger zones, how do you know that that fence is still fit? Yep. Crazy and world. as humans, we were designed to take shortcuts. Yeah, yeah. And a shortcut be, can be a productivity improvement, right? And and the reason they fenced it all was because that there was too much, um, the, uh, this product comes off a fruit, and there was too yep. much of it building up when there were guards. So they got rid of all the guards and they fenced it off. Nice. Yeah. Now, and actually, I think there's a smart idea because the problem with guards is guards actually hide the hazard. Yes, there could be a flammable hazard or, you don't, you know, a catch hazard, all sorts Absolutely. of stuff, who knows. Absolutely. Yep. And, you know, there's a better chance that guards might be put back on as well. So that's well, the interesting probably, story. Yeah. So what are we going to call this episode? How will we title it? I don't know. Um, <laughs> there's so many titles, really. I think we've covered a few uh, we have. salient points today. It's just the start. We have. Uh, so much to say in so little time, you know, from um, participation to consultation or participation or consultation or... Uh, yep, engagement, engagement, representation, absolutely. Yep. And it doesn't matter... That equals engagement. And at the end of the day, whether people are working in Safety One or working in the new view of safety, if you don't have good worker engagement, participation and representation... You're never going to understand if your systems are designed to keep work successful. Yeah, totally agree, Brent. And I think we can learn much more from everyday work than we can ever learn from a life-changing event or an MS. I've always said it's hard to learn from misery.
Thank you listeners for being part of this podcast. We would love to hear your learnings or other topics you would like us to explore about learning teams. Go to www.podcastlearnings.com and give us your feedback. Become part of the community of practice with learning teams. Go to www.learningteamscommunity.com, support the authors of the practice of learning teams, purchase the book from amazon.com or go to www.learningteamsbook.com for an inside look and other free book resources from the authors. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.